We're reading from Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to start at verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison, as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are ill-treated, as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is God's word. For those who are are tired, having been at Revive, or because it's just a normal week, um, a passage about sex and money we've hit this week. So that should help to just sort of keep you on on the edge of your seat a little bit. Uh, We're in verses four to six. Uh, Let me pray as we look at this together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it speaks into every corner of our lives. And we pray that you'd help us not to reject what you say in these verses, but to humbly sit at your feet, listen to you, and receive the wisdom that we so desperately need to live rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. When you think about your your daily life, uh, are there parts of it that you think... That bit of my life is mine. Uh, I think we do that all the time. And in, in many ways, it's perfectly normal and natural. We, we divide up our, our lives like that. If you're an employed person, uh, you think in terms of time, well, this bit of time, Saturday, or that evening, or, or that weekend, that is my time. It's not my employer's time. We think that way. Uh, I, I get to choose what I do with my time on a Saturday. In terms of space, we're so used to living in territory that's controlled by other people. Uh, We live in the world of CCTV. Uh, Every moment of our lives is caught on camera at some point until we finally step through our front door and shut the door and breathe a sigh and think, at last, this is my space. Uh, What I do here is not anyone else's business. Uh, We say an Englishman's home is his castle, but I'm sure that's not just limited to the English. Um, Although I once lived next door to an Albanian family who seemed to basically live outside their front door. It was incredible. It never closed during the daytime, and they would just sort of chat with friends, and people would come and go. There was something really lovely about that. I enjoyed being their friends. There was also something quite noisy about that. Um, But for most of us, we uh, we head home, and then that little Yale lock on the front door as we as we close it, isn't just for security, it's for privacy as well. We're in the castle, the drawbridge is pulled up, the portcullis comes down, and our private lives begin. And in terms of possessions, we often think the same. There's stuff that is mine, and what I do with my stuff is my business. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, as we've uh, got into Hebrews 13 over the last couple of weeks, 
the ethics of the Bible are really intrusive. They go everywhere. They leave no private space or time. Hebrews 13 is a prime example of that. In the first three verses last week, uh, the writer invaded our relationships with others in verse 1, our homes in verse 2, our uh, personal safety in verse 3, because we're supposed to stand with persecuted Christians. This week it gets even worse. Verse 4 invades our sexuality, and you can hear our society screaming in protest at that. No, that is not your business. It's not anyone's business. It is my body. What I choose to do with myself is private. Nothing to do with anyone else. How dare you tell me what I can and can't do with my own body? And then verse 5 invades our bank balance. And probably the, the reaction would be pretty similar. That is my money. I get to choose what I, what I spend it on. None of it's anyone's business but, but my own. Remember recently there was outrage when uh, there was a proposal that the, the government might pass legislation in, enabling it to directly access the bank accounts of serious uh, tax evaders. And a lot of people cried foul about that and said, that's a step too far. You've, you've crossed into people's private territory there by going into people's bank accounts. Sex and money. Two things regarded by our culture and probably by many of us here as the most private, the most personal aspects of our lives. And yet the Bible feels free to invade. And if you've been here for the series in Hebrews, you'll remember why that is. Uh, Jesus has died 2,000 years ago, once for all who trust in him, to bring us into a relationship with God, free and forgiven. Uh, And the letter was written to say, uh, don't walk away from that. And the outcome of that is that people who trust in Jesus live their whole lives in God's presence. We said a lot about that in the last couple of weeks. So our worship to God is not trying to enter God's presence in a little bit of our life, but it's living the whole of our lives in his presence without any exception. Sex and money as part of our lives is part of our worship. And so the end of chapter 12 urges us to worship God acceptably. And chapter 13 begins to summarize what worship is. Uh, Loving people in the first four verses and not loving money in verses 5 and 6. So acceptable worship, whole life worship for God begins with that principle, love people, not possessions. So this week we're in verses 4 to 6. Uh, Verse 4 is the last part of how we love people, by worshipping God with our sex, our sexuality. And verses 5 and 6 show us how we should worship God by not loving money. So these two most private, most personal aspects of our lives are just like the rest. What you do with sex and money is a matter of worship. So let's look first at verse 4. Worship God with your sexuality. Verse 4 says this. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. By the way, if anyone uh, is about to tune out, uh, this verse is for everyone. Marriage should be honoured by all. Uh, So this is for you and me, regardless of whether we're married or single or divorced or widowed or dating. All of us might either dishonour or honour marriage in how we live. And also, before anyone else is tempted to tune out, this verse is for failures. 
doesn't make that clear in the verse itself, but Hebrews throughout the whole letter assumes that we are all sinners, tempted in every way. So if, if this is a, a deeply uncomfortable subject for you because of past sin or present sin, uh, keep listening. This is, this is for you. None of us here has a perfect record when it comes to sexual sin. Uh, if you haven't come to Jesus for forgiveness about that, you, you can do that. And he will forgive you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. So verse 4, honouring marriage... What does that mean? What does it mean to honour marriage? The Bible, generally speaking, puts forward a a couple of opposite ways in which people can dishonour marriage. On the one hand, we can disapprove of sex and marriage. On the other hand, we can pursue sex in ways that, that damage or bypass marriage. And both of those are addressed here. Uh, so let's look at those in turn. What, on the one hand, people can still, even today, slip into thinking that sex and marriage are sort of dirty things, unworthy of a moral, upright, spiritual person. Even in our sex-obsessed society, we can sometimes react to those extremes of our culture or react to maybe disappointment in our own lives by developing a sort of overly prudish, negative view of sex. Now, these verses won't allow us to uh, dishonour marriage in that way. The word for honour in verse 4 means to value, to esteem, to regard as a a treasure, to be protected and guarded. So marriage and sex are precious things, not uh, necessary evils, as as some people in history have tried to to paint them. Verse 4 says that the marriage bed is to be kept pure. The word for marriage bed is koite. Hence our English word coitus. That's one for fans of Dr. Sheldon Cooper, if anyone is with me on that. Um, To uh, uh, engage in coitus, sex within marriage, is a thing which can be pure and good, according to verse 4. So if you're single at the moment, don't allow negative feelings towards marriage and sex to, to brew within you even if you wouldn't necessarily say them out loud. Uh, Remember, of course, that Jesus and Paul were single. They knew the hardships and temptations that uh, singleness can involve. They taught very positively about the benefits of singleness. And yet both of them taught everybody they spoke to to honour marriage. But it's not just single people that might downplay the value of sex within marriage. Married couples can actually do that too. Sex can be wonderful. It can also be very complicated. It can be affected by all sorts of issues within a marriage. Physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, medical. Couples can and often do fall into a pattern of just not bothering to navigate those complications because it's hard and it's difficult. And so sex can just fall off the agenda and and that builds resentment and distance and the temptation to look elsewhere. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul feels the need to encourage married couples to be having sex regularly. And uh, I remember as a single guy thinking, why would anyone need to be told that? And yet now I'm married, I, I do understand the complexities. If you're married... Don't drift away from valuing 
the sexual component of your relationship. Sex within your marriage is not only an honourable and pure thing. Remember, in, in the context of this chapter, it's an act of worship. If you've never thought of it that way before, let that blow your mind a bit and sink in. So don't disapprove of sex and marriage. But the second half of verse 4 shows us the other way of dishonouring marriage. Uh, God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Uh, Those are words that describe pursuing sex in ways that damage marriage or bypass marriage. Adultery is sex that damages marriage. It's any sexual sexual activity uh, between a married person and somebody who isn't their spouse. Sexual immorality, the original word there is um, basically sex that bypasses marriage. It's any sexual activity outside of marriage, whether it's um, solo sex uh, or two or more people that, that are not married. As a church, we want to be very clear on this. The only honourable and pure context for sexual activity of any kind is within marriage. And marriage is the permanent, publicly recognised union of one man and one woman. And all of us, if we call ourselves Christians, should take that view. Uh, That only sex within marriage is acceptable in God's sight. Now that is not because we want to be hardliners or fundamentalists. It's not because we are traditionalists that sort of hark back to an outdated set of standards that we long to reimpose uh, on, on a world today. It's because we believe that there are external standards. Standards that are set not by you or me or any government in the world. Standards set by God, the creator, the maker of all of us. And because he made us, because he knows us and loves us and wants the best for us, he can be trusted when he speaks on these things. The designer of your sexuality is better placed than anyone to tell you how to use it. So as a church, we need to be clear with each other that sex before marriage is not acceptable worship in God's sight. Sex with no intention of marriage is not acceptable worship. Sex with someone else's spouse is not acceptable worship. Sex with a virtual person in pornography is not acceptable worship. Sex with a homosexual partner is not acceptable worship. Sexual fantasies in our heads are very unlikely to be acceptable worship. Those things dishonour marriage. And according to verse 4, are worthy of God's judgment. Now look, that list I just read, I'm pretty sure that every single person in this room will have failed in one or more of those ways. The majority of us have, I know I have. And so as I talk about these things, you might well feel guilt uh, or hurt or anger, hopelessness as a result. And we might read verse 4 and and fear God's judgment, and uh, in a sense rightly so. But as I said, this this whole letter is written for failures. More than that, it's it's written for forgiven failures. Uh, It's written for people that are full of gratitude to Jesus, who now wants us to worship God acceptably with our whole lives, including our sex lives. And the worship that God requires 
uh, as the Bible as a whole makes really clear, is total sexual faithfulness if you're married and total sexual abstinence if you are single at the moment. Look, of course that is hard. Maintaining purity is difficult whether you're single or married. If you're single, I know how it can feel like an enormous and difficult sacrifice, especially when the culture around us just doesn't value sexual purity at all. In fact, it tells us that we need to have sex to be fully human. Look, just a second's thought about Jesus shows what a lie that is. But we're constantly told to think, I I can't live without what sex does for me, uh, or might do for me. But then married people, I know also how it can take you by surprise when uh, you suddenly realise that marriage hasn't cured you of sexual sin. Uh, When porn or even adultery uh, suddenly seem not just attractive, but even some people get themselves into a state where it seems necessary. It feels like something that you need because of difficulties in marriage. And our culture would say, well, yeah, do it. Whatever you need, do it. But there is something that our culture utterly, utterly fails to understand. And this is true of everyone here tonight. Your sexuality, my sexuality, ultimately, it is not yours. Your body, let's be frank, your sex organs, they are not yours. They don't just belong to you. Their primary purpose is not just to fulfill your needs or fulfill your dreams. Their primary purpose, according to these verses and its context, is for Worshipping God. Uh, on my bookshelf, uh, I had an excellent book, uh, which uh, has come in handy this week, by uh, a book called Paul David Tripp, called Sex and Money. That's got to be quite useful, looking at these verses. Um, and there's a chapter in it called, If sex is about worship, then it can't be just about you. And that hits the nail on the head. And I want to just quote a paragraph from that chapter, which puts it absolutely brilliantly. This is Paul David Tripp writing. Whether it's the executive who uses sex to sell a product and increase his bottom line and personal success, or the teenager using sex for another immature thrill, the old man grabbing at his nurse, the young woman who uses sex to get inside the riches of an old man, the husband having sex with someone other than his wife, or the ratings-obsessed TV executive throwing sex into a sitcom, even though it's not necessary to the plot line. Each of these people is doing the same thing. All of them are taking sex for their own, acting as if it belongs to them, and using it for whatever purpose they choose. Sex becomes their possession, their product, and their tool. It's a sex is all about me, view of human sexuality. And he says, this individualization of sex cannot work. It will never result in sex being what God intended it to be. It will never keep sex from distortion and darkness. Individualized sex simply cannot and will not go anywhere good. That is the point. Do you see how revolutionary it is? to see your sexuality as worship. Let's get practical for a second. How can you honour marriage uh, from whatever whatever position you're in at the moment? If you are married, 
then pretty obviously fight against anything, absolutely anything, that misdirects your sexual attentions away from your spouse. Pornography ruins marriages. Jesus says it's like committing adultery with somebody in your heart. Physical adultery with another person. Please, please, please don't be naive. Uh, Don't say to yourself, I would never do that. I could never do that. I'll never have the opportunity to do that. Don't say those things to yourself. One person commenting on this passage said that probably for every married person, there will be at some point in your life, at least once, another person with whom you could pursue a sexual relationship if you wanted. They'd be available. That's probably the case. So don't be naive. Sex is not for you. It is for worship. If you're single on a marriage by avoiding any situation designed to sexually stimulate yourself or another person, for a start, um, don't start a relationship with somebody who doesn't want to worship God with their sexuality. Someone who doesn't follow Jesus is going to regard sex as their own. A plaything, a need that should be fulfilled, as society keeps saying. If you imagine that you can stay pure in that relationship, I I suspect that's going to be a losing battle. If you're in a relationship, uh, going steady but not yet married, then honour marriage by not doing things that you should only do when you are married. Uh, I've met a number of couples who've chatted to me and said that they regret going on holiday together without others before they were married. We never planned to go that far physically, but we, the circumstances, glass of wine, we, we just got carried away. You need to keep your future marriage bed pure. You can have loads of holidays together when you're married. Uh, but before then, take other friends along as well. Keep accountable to them. Don't share a room. Don't share a bed. I know you'd save loads of money at the hotel. But marriage is so much more valuable than money. And here's one for all of us. Whether we're married, whether we're single. Honour the marriages of others. All of us can do that. We have this strange view of married couples, I think. Which says, once they're married... They're on their own. Their struggles are no one else's business. Uh, They can do marriage prep classes for a few weeks before they get married. uh, But once they've said, I do, that is it. Uh, That is not a healthy attitude. Do everything you can to support couples in their marriages. In our wedding services at CCM, if you've been to one, you'll you'll remember this. We include a vow for the gathered congregation, uh, which says... Will you, the family and friends of the couple, support and uphold them in their marriage now and in the years to come? And the congregation replies, we will. And uh, it doesn't matter whether you're married or single. Your married friends need you. We need your encouragement to stay pure, to keep loving one another. Quite a few years ago, I was worried about uh, the marriage of, of a friend of mine. And uh, I stayed up late one night and wrote a very long email to him about it. And I hit send and instantly regretted it. You know that horrible sinking feeling when you 
think, oh no, because it was too long, it was too detailed, it was probably a bit preachy, and you're absolutely right, I should have said it in person. Um, And after sending it, I spent ages thinking he was deeply offended. And we annoyingly didn't have the opportunity to catch up for ages. And eventually we did, and I apologized for what, everything I thought was wrong with the email. And I expected a, a sort of gruff reply from him. But he said, you know what really struck me about it? What really struck me was that somebody cared. Oh, gosh. Care about people's marriages. We married couples need you to care. Singles, don't drop your married friends, and vice versa. Of course, dynamics change, but we, we need each other still. Make the effort. Worship God with your sexuality. Let's turn to the second big area, 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6. Money. Worship God with your money. Uh, let's read verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said... Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Last week I mentioned that the original word for brotherly love, back in verse 1, is Philadelphia. There's a similar word in this verse for love of money. Philagoros. Doesn't sound quite so pleasant. Uh, I'm not aware of any actual towns called Philagoros, um, but uh, it's a, a, f- a fairly appropriate label for some cities, I would imagine. Uh, if you come across a place called Philagoros, don't move there. Um, worship starts with loving people and not possessions, as we've said. You worship God by loving people. You worship God by not loving money. So let me ask you, before we get into these verses, do you love money? think for a few seconds about that it's quite hard to answer no money's so useful do i have to hate the 50p in my pocket Uh, do i have to resent the fact that i can go to the supermarket and have a bit of money to buy food should you feel guilty about paying your rent because you've got the money to do it well it depends um the bible never condemns people just for having money and possessions. The book of Proverbs is is very positive about the blessings of wealth. Uh, Jesus gives many warnings about wealth. Uh, He tells one rich man, as you probably know, to give all of his possessions to the poor because he loved his wealth. But other wealthy people in the New Testament are, are not necessarily told the same thing. Some are commended for their attitudes and not necessarily told to get rid of all their riches. I think the key to to understanding this is to see how the two commands in verse 5 fit together and how they relate to verse 6. The two commands in verse 5 are keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The issue here is contentment. It's not keep your lives free from money, but from the love of money. In other words, the the desire to accumulate money and possessions, which lacks contentment and trust. uh, The the sort of life that is never satisfied, no matter what you have or don't have. Money might be a good thing, a blessing, but if your aim in life is simply to make money, 
If you're never content because you always think that you should have more money, then you're guilty of philagoros, of loving money. Why do we love money? Lots of reasons. Uh, How it can make us feel. If we have money, it gives us a sense of freedom and self-sufficiency and security. Uh, If we have money, it makes us feel powerful. It makes us feel in control of life because we have fewer and fewer limitations on what we can buy uh, in life, in our purchasing power. Maybe we love it for how it makes us look in the eyes of others. That sense of being superior, being cleverer or better at our job or having made better life choices than somebody who's got the smaller house. Maybe just simply... Craving more and more stuff. But love of money ends up looking very, very ugly. And some of the symptoms, there's other causes for these things, but love of money can, can produce workaholism, endless hours in the office when you're not necessarily forced to, uh, constant anxiety and fear, obsession with standards of living that leave you resenting others who have just a little bit more than you. Uh, the temptation to overreach, to get into debt, just to get the next car. Uh, the temptation to cut corners or to lie or cheat in order to get a better deal and make a bit more money. If you're a Christian and you slip into loving money, you're going to take your eyes off things like your brothers and sisters in church serving one another. If you think that your bank balance is more important than the Bible. So love of money is very destructive when it takes hold of us. Remember the other famous passage about love of money, 1 Timothy 6, uh, where it says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Uh, It describes that evil like this. Those who desire to get rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the truth and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I I guess we've all seen in people how ugly that can actually get. You know when you meet somebody and after a little bit of conversation you realise that they are obsessed with nothing but money. And you quickly see how uncaring that makes them towards people. How willing they are to compromise their relationships or their ethics in order to just make the next few dollars. And actually as a result how desperately unhappy they are underneath, no matter how much or how little they have. Do you want to be a version of that? Now, Hebrews 13 takes us even deeper than those effects of loving money. It focuses on the heart problem, the worship problem. If money is the centre of my life, then God is not the centre of my life. If I'm saying that um, uh, money is for me, it belongs to me, I own it, it's made for me, then we're not saying it's made for worship. So what is the antidote to love of money? Uh, it's, It's not to hate money. The antidote is to replace love for money with love for God. That is why verses 5 and 6 have these two fantastic quotes describing God's presence with his people. Uh, Quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, One is a promise from Joshua's day, the end of verse 5. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. 
And the other is part of a song, uh, Psalm 118. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now, why those quotes? I've been pondering that, and I reckon it is because we want to say those things about money. We want money to say, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Don't we? We want to be able to say, money is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Because I can solve all my problems with money. We want to be able to say that with confidence if we love money. But it would be a very false confidence if we do that. Unlike God, money forsakes people all the time. Two weeks ago, I listed bankrupt celebrities who'd had millions and lost it all. Money will let you and me down if we trust in it. Even if somehow we manage to die wealthy, money will forsake us on that day. What can man do to me? Well, as Jesus says, he can kill you. And money won't help then. But God won't forsake us, even at death, if our trust is in him. The language in verse uh, 5 is emphatic. You could translate it, I will never, ever leave you. I will never, ever forsake you. The most man can do is kill you, and that is all, because God will be there for you after that. So worship him and not money. So you don't have to chase the bigger house, the newer car, the better holidays. Uh, Everyone else thinks that they do. You don't have to. I know what it's like. Uh, Three days ago, I uh, looked around the house that we're moving to next month, and I got far too excited every time I found a new cupboard. Um, (laughs) Storage space, fantastic. (laughs) I need to remember, I have what I need. Much more than I need, really. And if that is the case, you and I are free to thank God for what we have and to be as generous with it as we possibly can. Some of the guys here will remember uh, Michael Farmer, uh, who was a very wealthy uh, city business trader. Uh, he came to talk to the men's breakfast here a couple of years ago. And uh, we asked him, as part of an interview, how he avoided being a lover of money, how he managed to be so generous with what he had. And he said, I don't think of it as mine. I try to hold it in open hands and not close my hands on the money that passes through my life or my bank account. That's a brilliant example for all of us. Worship God with with your money. It's his, ultimately. Don't think of it as yours. Only worshippers of God can walk through life knowing this contentment that verse 5 speaks about. You know that lovely feeling, um, rare feeling, of walking through London, feeling completely relaxed because you don't have to be anywhere? Hardly ever happens. And everyone else around you is madly dashing around to be at their job or get home or whatever it is. And for once in a blue moon, you think to yourself, I'm okay. I don't have to do that. I'm not in the rat race just for a few moments. I'm going to sit down in this park and just enjoy it and feel content. That's something of a picture of the detachment from money. Uh, What happens when you worship God rather than money? So there you have it. Possibly the two most private aspects of our lives, sex and money, they turn out to be not ours at all. Uh, 
They belong to God. They don't belong to us. They're God's gifts to us to be used in worship. So if you've been thinking of sex and money as your own, then come to God and confess that. Tell him you've got a problem. Tell him you've got a worship problem. You've been worshipping something other than him. Tell him that you want to worship him with your whole life. And because Jesus died for you, if you trust in him, then he's won forgiveness for you already. And God will say yes. God will forgive you. And then when you start to worship him with your whole life, it'll be acceptable in his sight. So let's pray. One Corinthians six nineteen says, "You're not your own; you were bought with a price. Therefore, honour God with your body." Father, please, please forgive us when we have grasped the things that you've given us as if they are ours. We're sorry when we've done that with our sexuality. We're sorry when we've done that with the money that passes through our hands or our bank accounts. Lord, help us to to remember that because Jesus died for us, because we're in your presence every second of every day, that all we do is worship. And that includes these most private parts of our lives. Help us, Lord, if we've not been worshipping you with our sexuality or with our money, to come to you in confession, in faith, in repentance and trust that... You accept everyone who comes to you with genuine repentance. You've already paid the price for our sins on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much that we are yours. We walk with you, knowing your favour every day. And please would that transform us in these two such difficult areas for your glory. Amen.